Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. I'm John Marzalek, a host for the podcast, Queer Voices of the South, a LGBTQ plus studies channel podcast of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking to Josephine Donovan about her book, The Lexington Six, Lesbian and Gay Resistance in 1970s America, published by University of Massachusetts Press. On September 23, 1970, a group of anti-war activists staged a robbery at a bank in Massachusetts, during which a police officer was killed. While the three men who participated in the robbery were soon apprehended, two women escaped and became fugitives on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, eventually landing in a lesbian collective in Lexington, Kentucky, during the summer of 1974. In pursuit, the FBI launched a massive dragnet. Five lesbian women and one gay man ended up in jail for refusing to cooperate with federal officials, whom they saw as invading their lives and community. Dubbed the Lexington Six, the group's resistance attracted national attention, inspiring a nationwide movement in other minority communities. Like the iconic Stonewall demonstrations, this gripping story of spirited defiance has special resonance in today's America. Drawing on transcripts of the judicial hearings, contemporaneous newspaper accounts, hundreds of pages of FBI files released to the author under the Freedom of Information Act, and interviews with many of the participants, Josephine Donovan reconstructs this fascinating untold story. The Lexington Six is a vital addition to the LGBTQ feminist and radical American history. Um, Josephine, welcome to our podcast. So excited to have you here today. I wondered if you could begin by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, in connection with this book, I uh, I was uh, an assistant professor at the University of Kentucky at the time of the events of the Lexington Six, um, and uh, I knew some of the participants, uh, and I was somewhat aware of what was happening at the time. Uh, this was in uh, January and February of 1975, and um, I, uh, I attended the uh, contempt hearings for the Lexington Six, in which they were held in contempt and sent to Kentucky County jails. And I saw them uh, carted off to the jails uh, in chains, by the way. They, they put them in chains. Um, so I was familiar, and I visited the jails uh, later when they were while well, they were incarcerated. So I was uh, familiar with the events of the case, and for many years I uh, wanted to uh, write a book about it. But it was only recently that uh, some important uh, oral histories that had been done uh, shortly after the events of the case became available to researchers. And uh, when I learned that, I thought, well, maybe I can actually write this book and track down some of the other sources that um, will fill in the whole story and I can 
uh, put it all together. And so, uh, so I began working on it a few years ago. And um, that's, that's basically my connection to the case. Um, as I say, I was uh, on the faculty at the University of Kentucky at the time and um, have written a number of books in the area of literary criticism and feminist theory, animal ethics. Um, and so uh, uh, eventually ended up at the University of Maine, uh, where I'm a emerita professor at the present time. Um, you talk a little bit about your own experience during these times, and there's so many questions I have for you, it's hard to even know where to jump in. But I, I guess I'll start with, if you could describe to listeners what Lexington, Kentucky was like in the 1970s, especially the feminist movement. And, and you talk, I remember reading in your book about the town and gown division that you that people experienced in Lexington at that time, especially. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> of course, this was still during the period of the Vietnam War. And um, they, uh, and the Lexington campus of the University of Kentucky had had a strong anti-war uh, movement uh, going on for several years, really. And there was quite a bit of antagonism between the, uh, you know, mainstream people of Kentucky and the university students. So there, that was kind of a backdrop for, uh, for the uh, town gown problem in Lexington at the time. And of course, the, it was the era of the counterculture and uh, stu students were into drugs and, you know, had long shaggy hair and wore kind of ragged clothes. And I mean, all of this aggravated the straight mainstream people. And so if you throw in then the issue of lesbian and gay uh, identities, um, uh, you can understand that there was a significant uh, divide um, between uh, the two groups. And of course, the grand jurors were uh, members of the mainstream community. And so that was part of the problem, I think, in the confrontation between the Lexington Six and the grand jury. But uh, even more acute, I think, was the situation of lesbians and gays in K Kentucky and indeed in the country at the time. Um, I mean, it was not a chic thing to be. And uh, to be outed at that time meant you could be imprisoned, you could lose your job, you could have your parents turn against you, you could have friends turn against you. Um, it was a matter of being shamed. Uh, publicly, and it was it was a terrible ordeal to be outed. And of course, these Lexington Six were all being outed by the publicity, and of course by the FBI, who were informing parents and uh, employers and friends and so forth. Um, so that was part of the uh, um, atmosphere at the time. That's important to understand. But there was also, uh, of course, the rising second wave women's movement. And I think that inspired a number of the uh, Lexington Six, all of them really, um, to carry on their resistance to the intrusive tactics of the FBI and, um, 
And so it's important to understand the strength, really, of the the women's movement at the time. And, of course, the gay, gay and lesbian movement was just beginning, too. And so that was also a factor, especially for the, the gay man in the, uh, in the group. In the group, yeah. You, you talk about in the book um, second-wave feminist theory, and I wondered if you could explain to listeners what that is, for listeners who aren't familiar with feminist theory. Well, it was um, the basic concepts of feminism today were rooted in second wave feminism, which kind of emerged in the late 1960s uh, as a result of the uh, shabby treatment that women were receiving in some of the political movements of the day, the anti-war movement and the uh, civil rights movement. And so the women decided to have a movement of their own, uh, the women's liberation movement, and um, to assert the rights of women to, um, you know, to have full uh, existence in in the world and um, uh, not be treated as second-class citizens forever. So, um, so that was the, the and there are some very basic principles, uh, the uh, main one being that uh, uh, the women's uh, liberation of women is the root uh, liberation for any revolutionary movements, and uh, uh, also the various concepts that we consider mainstream today, like the personal is political and mm. uh, things like that, were developed, of course, concern about domestic violence and rape. And uh, most of the issues that are of concern today were um, first addressed by the second wave uh, of feminism in the late 60s and early 70s. And you talk about in the book how there are different ways that... Th- that um, the Lexington Six were influenced are different reasons why they chose to resist the FBI. And um, I guess one of them was second wave feminist. They're, they're, they're just their beliefs in feminist ther- theory. Well, I think they felt that their community was being attacked by the, uh, by the FBI, which of course were all white males and um, they were behaving very aggressively and intrusively banging on the people's doors, barging into their apartments um, and uh, threatening them and blackmailing them and bullying them. And so um, it just became a matter of uh, personal resistance to this these macho um, offensive behaviors on the part of the FBI agents. So that was part of it. Part of it was loyalty to the two fugitives that they had known, um, they didn't know about their past at the time when they were living in Lexington, and they didn't know about their uh, violent uh, actions in in, Bo- in the Boston uh, bank robbery. Uh, but um, and that and the, they knew them under disguise and also under using false names. Uh, but they felt loyalty to them as friends and as feminists, as lesbians. And um, so there was a sense of sisterhood or of personal loyalty, of uh, um, political solidarity that I think motivated them. Certainly at the beginning, that was the uh, 
Uh, I think the primary motivation and that sense of resistance against attacks against their lesbian feminist community. Sure, sure. And it, it's from what you say in the book, the FBI was going beyond just asking questions about who knew these fugitives, but or these two women who had been involved in the bank robbery, but they were also asking personal questions and seems like trying to dig into who was in the community and what was going on. Well, then they began asking personal questions like who was involved with whom and uh, who was a lesbian, who wasn't, uh, and, um, you know, who knew whom and what their political beliefs were. And um, the, the FBI seemed to have developed this theory that nationally there was this network of violent lesbians that were harboring all these fugitives and so they were uh, really focused on the on the lesbian and gay community now nationally really and um so that was part of their the theory that they were going on of course it was false it was there was no such uh network but um but that was part of the reason they kept going after lesbians and to some extent, gay men too. And of course, I, also I think they sensed that this was a vulnerable community that they could go after without having any kind of public outcry. And then, of course, they were they were right in that. Yeah, I remember there was a point in your book when you talk about um, how easy it is um, for some a powerful force like the government, the FBI, going after a community that is that is not well-respected or not approved of in society. Yes, I think so. They, um, uh, I think they felt they had a, a certain license to go after minority groups because, the, again, the mainstream white uh, uh, audience would not uh, be as concerned about them. And so uh, they targeted uh, Native Americans, um, African Americans, um, uh, Chicano, the Chicano movement, the Puerto Rican American movement. Um, There were just numbers of minority groups that they used these same tactics uh, after, really, the the Lexington Six case, which... um, served as a kind of a model of resistance for many of these groups, I think. And, um, and so as the resistance movement grew, um, uh, many of these groups uh, were also into finding themselves held in contempt and thrown into jail in the same way that the Lexington Six were. Yeah. It, it almost seemed humorous to me, um, in a strange way, I guess, that I, I think the quote you used, the quote I'm taking from your book is you said the FBI believed there was this, quote, secret lesbian cabal that were harboring fugitives such as Patty Hearst. Yes. And that was their erroneous theory. But, um, uh, and I mean, I, there may have been a lot of unconscious motivations of, uh, in fact, I'm sure there were of, being uh, threatened by these defiant women, and um, and uh, especially in the case of the judge and the uh, prosecuting attorney, uh, I think they developed a sense of that these uppity women need to be put back in their place, and the sense that um, uh, 
uh, that that this is not proper behavior for young women, and that they uh, they need to be taught a lesson. I'm 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 sure that this became a kind of motivation uh, for the uh, for the judge, especially. And, uh, he was outraged at the at the fact that they were refusing to cooperate, and in a very defiant way. If you read the transcripts, they really uh, they they weren't shy about. Uh, uh, expressing their contempt, really, for the whole process. And that offended the judge, and it added to the whole emotional confrontation uh, of, in the case, which, which maybe in the end was probably why Jill Raymond, for example, ended up spending over a year in a Kentucky County Jail just because the judge was irritated at her, basically. Well, and I think you said that one of the lawyers um, who was a woman, um, the judge was offended by the fact that she wore a pantsuit. That's right. Am I getting that right? Yeah. Yeah. And and actually ordered her to change clothes. Is that right? That's right. Oh, it's unbelievable. I mean, in general, of course, this was just the beginning of the women's movement. And um, and so, uh, so these people like the judge, who was an older white man, uh, were just kind of perplexed and um, uncertain how to handle these assertive women. And uh, so proper women wore dresses. <laughs> and so <laughs> she was, uh, uh. you know, she wasn't being proper. And of course, she was very, a very assertive and defiant uh, attorney. And uh, that also, I think, was um, clearly he was uh, upset about that. And uh, so that kind of dynamic was going on as well. Yeah, I remember there was a part you include a transcript, and in, in, uh, I remember reading up one of the transcripts where he is um, really disrespectful to her um, when right. she tries to make a, a case. But I, I think you said it sounded like he was a little bit intimidated by her also. Well, I think he was flummoxed by her. I mean, it, 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 you know, it, it's true at this point. And, um Women, you know, had not behaved like this, or at yeah. least at least yeah. that was the going assumption. I think that probably is false too. But uh, the norm, at any rate, was for women to be polite, 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 and quiet and submissive. And um, uh, she was not, and neither were any of the uh, Lexington Six women. And right. so. Um, uh, so they were defying norms, which added to the whole uh, uh, drama of the case, uh, and um, maybe in the end became the underlying issue. These, these, uh, you know, of course, um, you say in the book that you were away. I believe you said um, Massachusetts, maybe when um, the, the two women who were the fugitives were living in Lexington, but you came back later as a lot of this is blowing up and the FBI is interviewing people, I guess. Uh, yes, I was on leave uh, in the fall of 1974, which is when uh, the two fugitives were, well, the summer and fall of 74 were living in Lexington. I yeah. came back in January and uh, to, for the spring semester at the university uh, to teach. And um, by that time, uh, the, the the FBI arrived on the scene in the the first week in January, so I I was I knew some of these people, 
that were being uh, interrogated, and so uh, so I was aware of the um, the the process going on at the at the time. In fact, I was somewhat concerned that I might be interrogated at that time, which I was not. But I was later, a couple of years later. But um, um, but um, after that was, totally... that was after the uh, Lexington Six. They renewed the the search for um, uh... Kathy Power in 1978, and um, interviewed a lot of people. At that time, I was living in just north of Boston, and so um, they were, were. There was a huge dragnet in the Boston area at that time, and I had an FBI agent come to the door at that point um, and ask me if I knew where Kathy Power was, and I said I had nothing to say. <laughs> Which, oh, uh, that must have been terribly I, frightening. I can't. It's hard to even imagine. What was that? I said it must have been terribly frightening to have an well, FBI was, agent come because to your I, door. I knew what um, happens when you don't cooperate, and um, so I. Uh, but I, but I'd been prompted by you know have being aware of the case that you should say to the FBI, "I have nothing to say," and that that sort of cuts off the uh, discussion. So I, that's what I told them, and happily for me, I I didn't hear from them again <clears throat> although I lived in dread of it for for months really but um, by then the case was pretty cold and they never did catch uh, Kathy Power by the way I mean she eventually turned herself in 20 uh, some years later but they never caught her it's amazing wow and, and I, I... I can't imagine the psychological effect this has on people. Um, and you, you even talked talk mentioned. I think it must be at the end of the book that you even had your mail gone through um, at times. You you discovered your mail was being opened. <clears throat> it definitely was. Yes, even the uh, the uh, mail delivery person um, down in Lexington. He said, I don't know what you're up to, but the, nobody has the right to open your mail. So it was pretty obvious to. You know, I mean, it was ripped open and then taped it, taped back. Um, it was, and I was a fringe person. I mean, I, I had nothing to do with the case, really. Um, but I just happened to be a feminist living in Lexington, basically. But uh, that, so you know that the uh, the main figures were not only was their mail being opened, but the um, uh, the, their phones, of course, were wiretapped. That was pretty clear. Their garbage was being, you know, uh, rifled through by FBI agents, um, and they were being trailed. They were being uh, tracked. I mean, uh, by agents, you know, six feet behind, so to speak, as, as Carrie Junkin put it. Um, so that so there was a sense of uh, of surveillance, and uh, it was very frightening that was frightening in and of itself i i mean i didn't feel that personally again i well as i say wasn't really that directly involved but um for the principals i mean that you know their whole lives were just completely uh, overturned by this siege really of the uh, these agents that were onto them constantly for for weeks until they finally uh 
were subpoenaed before grand, the grand jury, and and even after they um, uh, were released, uh, they still had problems with the FBI in some cases for years. So it 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 was um, their whole lives were just completely turned over, and they were completely innocent. You know, it was like. It's really unbelievable, and it still is. But uh, at the time, I mean, everybody was just bewildered at how could this be happening. Yeah, I remember you said that that it was pretty clear that the FBI knew that they didn't have any information to share, but yet right. they were forcing them to talk about these personal details of their lives. Right. Well, that's where you begin to wonder why did they keep pursuing this? I mean, that there was some other motivation there than just tracking these fugitives, and that's why I say I think they were kind of out to get the. Uh, uh, they just didn't approve of the lesbian and gay existence, and uh, so there was a punitive uh, element, I think, uh, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> involved that has nothing to do with with the proper purpose of the FBI is, which is to track fugitives and bring them to justice. So yeah. it, it got way off track and um, it became a, almost a kind of a, a, a vendetta or, or persecution um, that had very little to do with, uh, with proper FBI behavior. And by the way, of course, the FBI had a long history of being obsessed with uh, lesbians and gays, going back to the era of J. Edgar Hoover, totally, totally obsessed with the issue. And during the 1950s, there was the so-called Lavender Scare, in which um, President Eisenhower issued a a regulation that no gays or lesbians could serve in the federal government. And so, um, so J. Edgar Hoover developed this so-called sex deviance file in which he had thousands of names. And there was this purge to find all these so-called perverts, which is the term mm-hmm. that was used as pervert, mm-hmm. uh, in the federal government. And um, this continued into the 60s and, um, and I think was still, even though Hoover had died by the time of the Lexington Six case, I think the um, uh, obsession with... Uh, with gays and lesbians was uh, was still there in the uh, sort of mentality of the of the FBI. Well, and as you noted um, in your book, in Kentucky and many states, there was still the sodomy law, right? In effect, yeah, it wasn't until many years later that uh, that was overturned, and then nationally, it wasn't until the twenty first century, really, that the Supreme Court finally rule to um, overturn all those laws. I, the women, the women in the Lexington Six, especially, um, must have all of them must have had tremendous courage. And I, I want I know that you were on the periphery, and you may I think you um, knew a couple of the people in the Lexington Six. But I wondered if you could talk about just what they were like and the courage that it took for them to to resist, like as they did. Well, they certainly had a lot of courage and um, determination, and um, I think um, 
Partly, in the end, they were fired by this sense of indignation and outrage that they were mm. being treated this way. And they, they just had this feeling that it was wrong uh, to be treated so completely unjustly. And the, the longer it went on, the more their feeling of outrage grew, I think. And so the, the tone in some of their, state, their statements in the grand jury uh, hearings was very defiant and, uh, and, and, and kind of amazing how strong and defiant they really were. And uh, after all, these were basically kids, I mean, 20, 21, and um, had had no previous experience of this kind. They weren't yeah. lawyers. I mean, and yet they rose to the occasion in a way that uh, is really, really remarkable. Um, so uh, I don't know what gave them that kind of strength other than, as I say, their own personal outrage and then their sense of loyalty to friends and, and to the community uh, that they felt was under siege. And the, the other thing about it is that it, it happened so quickly. You know, it, they were living peaceful lives in December of 74, and by March they were in jail. And I think there, the, the fact that they were able to react so quickly and so strongly uh, is in itself kind of an amazing accomplishment. It really is. Yeah, yeah. it is. And then, of course, for Jill Raymond, who managed to endure over a year in these really grim uh, Kentucky County jails. Um, that was a matter of real perseverance. And um, uh, I think she would admit that she just played it day by day. That, yeah. you know, if, if you... If she had known at the beginning that she had a whole year to spend, she probably would have given up at the beginning. But to play it day by day, she was able to make it through. And and then she was reinforced, I think, by the support she was getting but from lots and lots of people. And it, it became a kind of national uh, issue at a certain point. And so she felt strengthened, uh, strengthened by that. Um, yeah. But uh, there's, you know, there's, there's one can't overemphasize what kind of personal uh, strength uh, all of them showed. I think because of the trauma, the psychological and physical trauma, this would yeah impact on somebody. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I mean, those Kentucky County jails were, as one person described them, were like medieval dungeons. I mean, they were nothing. They weren't uh, modern. Uh, they were you know, really grim. Uh, and these were, you know, middle-class kids that had not experienced any severe physical hardships to that point. And uh, yet they accepted that they, they lived through it. I mean, they, uh, most of them, a couple of them found it intolerable. But um, yeah. um, so anyway, uh, they, they do stand as an example of uh, remarkable courage and um, integrity. What was it like for them in jail? For them? Yeah. Well, I'm not sure what you mean. Uh, what were the conditions like in the jail oh, itself? They were very yeah. small, cramped quarters. Uh, the, each jail was different, but... Um, 
they were scattered about the state. There was the one over in Pineville was a very narrow, cramped um, uh, quarters that you know looked did very much look like a medieval dungeon. I mean, it had a huge wooden door. I think it was wooden. I can't remember, but. Um, Anyway, uh, so and they lived there with sometimes as many as four people in the room, um, and the food was terrible. Of course, it was just you know the same thing over and over, and usually not very healthy. Yeah. Uh, so there was that, and then um, that this was a time where there were there was no social media, there was no internet. Um, so the only interaction would be someone who would come to visit you, um, and some of the one of the jails I think had a TV set, but uh, uh, some of them didn't even have that. So they were, and to the extent that they were, you know, alone. I mean, they it was very there was a, a solitariness of it in itself was, uh, and just the griminess of it. I mean the the lack of cleanliness and so forth. Having yeah, just the simple fact of having your freedom taken away and with absolutely, all those additional well, absolutely. things. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean that's the yeah. main thing, yes. That's that's a key point. I wanted to ask you what it was like for you when um you talk you you actually attended um the final I guess the court when the court was in session the judge made his final ruling, what it was like for you. And then you had that poignant scene where you go behind the court to see, um, I can't remember which of the women it was, but in the car, and she holds up her, you know, she holds up her wrist to show you she's going to... Well, I was in the courtroom. Uh, I was at the back. It was a huge courtroom, and it was packed with people. So, I, you know, I, I didn't actually see, uh, I couldn't see too much of what was going on. So I, I can't say I have a... I have a rather fuzzy recollection of that whole part of it, yeah. but afterwards, um, I went around. I was trying to decide. Uh, I thought, well, they're they're going to have to take them off to these jails. So I went around behind the courthouse, and there they were in the in the police vans. And um, so I went up to, and there was didn't seem to be anybody around. It was kind of a strange situation. Yeah. I just went up to one of the vans and. It happened to be Jill Raymond, and um, I said a few words to her, and um, she tried to raise her hand, but of course they were shackled to, together and uh, in handcuffs and stuff. Uh, but she was, um, uh, you know, in, I wouldn't say high spirits, but uh, uh, cheerful and um, kind of waved to me, and, and uh, as they, then they carted them off. It was, was of course, it was yeah. a totally wrenching. I mean, to see your friends, you know, just hauled off like that. I mean, in a completely unjust and unfair uh, example of tyranny, really. Um, it, it was it was uh, appalling, and uh, of course, it lived with me <clears throat> to this day, really. Yeah, it would be like a nightmare seeing this unfold, especially for the people involved. And feeling so helpless, you know, that there was nothing you could do about it. And and all the efforts of, well, of course, they were going to appeal, and there were a lot of legal efforts going on, but um, um, still the actual fact that 
as they were being herded off to these miserable conditions. Yeah. You know, I don't know if there's any comparison here, but I recently um, saw, I think it was an editorial on CNN about um, how during the last administration, um, one of the CNN reporters, Barbara Starr, who covered the Pentagon, um, well, you know, was or they CNN was ordered to turn over all her emails. And in the editorial, and I'm not sure who this person is, he must have some, he has some connection to CNN, said that he was um, told that if he, you know, revealed this to anybody, that he would, um, he would be, I guess, in contempt, or he would be, um, he was, he was always issued an order by a judge not to talk. Right. And I, it really, I know this is totally different, but it reminded <clears throat> me of what you talked about um, in terms of the FBI tactics um, and using the grand jury as a threat to these women and people across the country to talk. And just wondered if you could talk about that whole tactic by the FBI, the grand jury threat. Well, they, they grant, the purpose of a grand jury is to indict people for crime. So the evidence is usually presented to a grand jury that uh, either suggests there was or was not a crime and that that particular person was responsible for it. And if that's the case, the grand jury then indicts that person mm -hmm. who then has to face a trial uh, before a regular jury or a judge. In this case, and in fact, since the Nixon administration, um, they have used the grand jury as a way of forcing people to testify um, because through the what is called use immunity. I don't know if we want to get into the technicalities of that, but yeah. um, basically it forces people to testify. They have to either testify or go to jail. I mean, so that's their basic choice. And... Um, they can ask anything in the grand jury. I mean, they can, and you have to answer. And um, so, uh, and in theory, the, the, this material, this evidence is, as I say, being used to prepare an indictment. And in the case of the Lexington Six, the, um, there was never any question of indicting any of them because none of them had ever done anything. So the, the issue, the only indictment could have been for the two fugitives, but they were already indicted in other jurisdictions. So it, there was no purpose, in other words, no legitimate purpose to the, to the Lexington grand jury. Later, they, later in the appeals process, they came up with the idea that these uh, Lexington Six had been harboring fugitives, which would be a crime which you could indict them for. Um, but there was no evidence for that. So um, yeah. they couldn't have indicted them on that. Uh, so the, the whole thing fell apart by any rational person uh, could see that. And yet, um, yet it proceeded. I guess that's the part that's really disheartening because various judges and appeals courts, even the Supreme Court, uh, tacitly uh, 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 allowed the... the, the lower court decisions to stand. So um, so that's disheartening because it was such a blatant injustice and to see that nothing was done about it, you know. And, and you say this led to a national, a national um, resistance uh, against this grand jury threat by the FBI. That's right. Well, <clears throat> the, um, there were, there were, 
there were some two national organizations, <clears throat> the Center for Constitutional Rights and the National Lawyers Guild, um, a- along with the New York Grand Jury Project, um, uh, which were motivated really by the Lexington Six case, mm-hmm. uh, got organized and began a national grand jury resistance movement. And so uh, a number of these subsequent cases were uh, able to access information that was provided by the these groups. And they also provided them with lawyers and um, with uh, tactics that had been developed in, through the various cases. And so, um, so that throughout the country, really, there were a number of these, uh, these cases uh, following the Lexington Six case. And um, uh, it was quite an a, quite a, a amazing job of political organizing, really, that when you consider, again, that the, um, there was no internet, there was the you know, phones were tapped. I mean, the, the means of communication were limited, and yet yeah. the word spread. And the, and uh, and a lot of these communities were pro- prompted not to communicate, not to cooperate. And so, um, so the resistance grew to the point where, uh, um, you know, it, it, as I say, it was really a national movement of resistance to these kind of intrusive tactics by the uh, FBI. Which took courage, I would think, on the part of these people across the country. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, there and you know, I, as I cite in the book, there are a number of them that took very courageous stands, and they ended up in prison. I mean, they spent several months in prison. I mean, it wasn't, you know, just a frivolous statement. I mean, they paid the con- consequences. Paid the pro- some of them. Uh, um, you know, under a terrible, one woman was pregnant. I mean, uh, they still, you know, wrote it out and stayed the course in prison. So, um, so it was a lot of examples of uh, spirited and courageous resistance at that time. I, I think a good place to end is if you could talk a little bit about how you believe. This compares, as you say in the book, to the Stonewall Rebellion in New York City, the famous Stonewall Rebellion. Oh, well, <clears throat> I think the motivation was somewhat similar of resistance against this intrusive, um, in the case of Stonewall police, in the case of the Lexington Six, the FBI, um, intrusion into their community and destroying their community. And... Um, mm-hmm and the sense of outrage and indignation and just having had, just being fed up with it, I think was similar in both, in both cases. Of course, in New York, it was largely um, a gay bar that was uh, the site of the resistance and, um, and uh, a lot of sort of street fighting uh, that um, did not happen, of course, in the Lexington case. And the Stonewall case got much more publicity. Um, So the Lexington case was a bit more subdued and yet the same same motivation, I think the same spirit of of resistance and and, uh, just being fed up with being treated um, trashily um, was uh, the same in the two cases. 
Yeah, how it led to something spreading nationwide. <clears throat> what was that? How it how it led to this resistance nationwide. How it? Yes, I think so. Yeah. And, and of yeah. course, like, not just in the gay and lesbian communities, but in a number of other uh, minority communities. Uh, so um, anyway, that. Um, yeah. Well, um, Josephine, this is just. Um, I really appreciated your book. I, it, um, I as I read it, I, I thought, why hasn't this been made into a movie yet? Because it just it seems like it's such an important story that needs to be told for people that haven't heard it before. So I hope that happens down the line. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much, and I really appreciate your uh, interest and enthusiasm about the book. Oh yeah, and the case. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and to our listeners, if you are interested in reading The Lexington Six, you can click on the highlighted title of the book in the description included with this podcast. You can also go directly to the University Press of Massachusetts website. And join us again next time for Queer Voices of the South on the New Books Network.